Hello, this is your host, Donna Barr, and welcome to A Bazillion Ghost Stories. Does anybody really know a bazillion ghost stories? But then again, aren't all stories set in the past ghost stories? I've mentioned before how I can spot journalism or reality in what are supposedly mythologies, religious books, etc. And I think I've found one in a marvelous book called Trickster, Native American Tales, a Graphic Collection. This was published in the United States by Fulcrum Books in 2010. It is done in the drawn book format, what is commonly called comic books, by native storytellers and artists. The story is called Espun and Grandfather. I hope I pronounced Espun correctly. And it's told by John Bear Mitchell, and the art was by Andy Bennett. And I thought it was about raccoon when I first saw it, but the animal being drawn was tall and slender and a long, upright, striped tail. In the course of the story, which you're going to have to get the book to see this marvelous story, the what I thought was a raccoon runs into trouble because he's a trickster who doesn't pay attention, and he becomes raccoon. And I thought, well, what was he before he was raccoon? And then I realized what he looked like. He looked like a Mundi, which is, I believe, South Texas, down into Mexico and South America. It's a relative of the raccoon, but it's tall and slender and much more like a monkey and has a tall, upright tail. And it just makes me wonder, of course, uh, the people of the New World traveled around a lot. They weren't locked in. They had a lot of trade routes. They moved. They married. They had kids. And I wonder if somebody coming up from the South went to another family who was up North and they saw what they thought was Kuotabundi, and that's a modern name as far as I know, and said, why does it look like that? And knowing storytellers, they can make up good stories off the tops of their heads, so maybe this is someone explaining to a child why that new animal is short and fat, but might be the same one that they remembered and liked and it would make them feel more at home. I can't prove that, but it just feels like that to me. And I just realized that in the story, Espun thinks he's going to help Grandfather, and Grandfather is a stone figure on the side of a mountain. And recently, what they call the Great Stone Face that had been on the side of a mountain in the eastern United States, it finally collapsed off the cliff where it had been for millennia. And so this is another hint where this story possibly originated. You've got an area that's got a stone face and it has collapsed and fallen down the hill. Well, what happens is it lands on 
the uh, espu and squash it in flat and the ants have to put him back together. Very often ants help people in new and old world fairy tales and mythologies. So this could be this kind of face that shears off. Uh, you're not going to have this happen in the mountains in the western United States so much unless you get into some of the shale mountains. Uh, but in the east, uh, we've got these mountains that do shear off formations, and this could have been another explanation. It's wonderful how mythologies are part of antique science and simply passing on the stories about what happened. Up here, there's the well-known story about Lake Crescent, which was originally a glacial stream, but the native people here have a story about how two dragons were fighting and then the the two mountains on each side of the stream collapsed and the stream filled in and became Lake Crescent. And supposedly the dragons who are now underground are still weeping and they are what causes Soldok and the Elwha hot springs. The native people in the central area of North America have tales about a river monster. And you have to understand that people didn't know about extinction. Uh, when people found pieces of mastodons and mammoths in the ice uh, up in Siberia, they thought that that came from underground animals like giant moles. So there were people in the middle of North America who would not let their children swim in rivers in certain areas because they had found the bones of the river monster. And these were the areas where the inland sea used to be, where the Mosasars used to swim. And when they were asked to draw and describe the river monsters, their descriptions were very, very close to the old Mosasars. No doubt they had found fossils and being people who commonly had to work with animal anatomy because they butchered various animals, deer, elk, bison, they would have understand what a fossil looked like and how to turn it back into a live animal. So, since they found the bones, they probably told their kids, stay out of that river, here are the bones, they must have the river monsters there. Because... The idea of extinction, the idea of something passing away and never being there again, was only a recent concept. Things might die out, uh, as they did with the giant moa in New Zealand, um, but only a generation or two might retain that. The idea that things could pass away and never come back is really kind of recent. I don't know if it's because we don't want to admit it, especially if we've caused it. I've made mention about people moving around regions of North America, so now I'm going to tell a local story. We have a bay up here. It's called Clallam Bay. And like all these little bays and inlets, these things always look harmless. And I've already told you how the Belfair Bay at Shelton is deadly and can kill a child. Well, this one can destroy your equipment. First of all, it's got a nasty undertow. Secondly, the bottom surface of the bay is pebbles. It's shingle. 
And those big waves come in, which are remainders of ocean waves, come down the strait and hit that. And it's like being in a meat grinder. And I have seen somebody come in when the waves have thrown all those pebbles and rounded rocks up into basically a cliff. And he came in on a motorized boat like a, like a big dinghy, uh, like a river dinghy. And they, his wife and kids were with him, or that's who they seemed to be. And he let him off onto the beach. And then he tried to get the boat turned around and, or tried to get it to come into where he could, he could get it to beach. And it's not possible. The waves are hitting this thing. Uh, the woman and the kids said, forget this. We're not getting back in this. So I, he left. And I suppose what they did is they went off to CQ or someplace and they probably met him there. Um, they would have had a hitchhike or he would have had to come back with the car or something because they were not getting back in that boat. Well, nobody here except for personal use and for a day or so does any kind of crabbing. They do not put out commercial crab pots in a line. And one day, oh, I don't know, 10 years ago, there was a line of commercial crab pots. And I thought, well, that's a little odd. Nobody ever does that. So maybe they figured out a way to do it. Well, the next night we had a high tide. I think it was a king tide. And it really roared in. And I came down to the beach and the tide had gone way out and way up on the uh, on the beach, way away from the water. There was, in a great big line, about a mile and a half long, all of this guy's crab pots. And they were nearly new. So I called Fish and Game and I said, this thing, the beach has chewed up a guy's crab pots, yanked up all the hold dolls that he had on the bottom. I mean, you cannot make anything firm down there. You can't plug it into gravel and make it stay. And so they showed up and we started looking around these crab pots. And I'm going to do a story on it because I used to work for the newspapers. So I'm taking details. And they know that. Everybody knows up here knows I'm the reporter. Um, even though when I tell people I'm the reporter, you're talking to a reporter, they'll still, still tell me stuff that later on shows up and they get all upset. And it's like, you were warned. But these guys are okay with that because they know I'm going to tell good stories about them. They're usually doing cool things. And we find a serial number on some of the equipment. So they call this guy that owns this stuff. And the weird thing about it is this guy lives in Nia Bay. Well, we'd figure Nia Bay, with its history of fishing and, and crabbing, and uh, basically it is a tribe that has lived for thousands of years on the sea products, on the people of the sea. And we figured they would know better than to line a bunch of crab pots down up at that you know, meat grinder that is the Clallam Bay Beach with its horrible undertow. So they call him, and I heard them say, because we're using cell phones, they says, well, you better go down here and get your equipment. And I guess they said, uh, he said to them that, well, I'll get that tomorrow. And I, they repeated it. And I said, well, he better get down here because if he tries to come in tomorrow, all his equipment's going to be gone. And I did not mean that the tide would come back in and take it because the law in Clallam Bay is salvage. You leave it, it belongs to somebody else. It's going to disappear whether it's legal or not. So the guy is down there at two o'clock in the morning picking up his crab pots. And other than the occasional diver or personal boat, uh, we haven't seen anybody else attempting to do commercial crabbing in the Clallam Bay Bay. Speaking of dangerous places or places that might have reflected danger, we have something in Beaver down on Highway 101 
It's called the Tragedy Graveyard. It's in the yard of the old schoolhouse down there. And it was called the Tragedy Graveyard because the early settlers said that only one of the 13 graves in there were the result of natural causes. There's a lot of death involving jealousy and shootings and people going mad in the woods. This was before there was any kind of medical help or any police or anybody else who might have been able to straighten out lives in some of these rural areas. Always remember when you're dealing with people that are isolated that an early means of ex execution both in Iceland and among the Germans was isolation. The Germans call it being declared Fogelfrei or free as a bird. At that point you had the status of a bird. Nobody loved you anymore and anybody could kill you. Well that's kind of like the way people lived in rural areas because we are not supposed to live alone. We are troop apes and we can starve, we can get sick, or we can just go crazy. We even have something up here that I call Hoko Syndrome because people move up the Hoko River so they can be alone and you run into them after a few months and they pile out of their houses and try to get you to come in and stay for lunch and supper and oh would you stay overnight because they haven't had anybody to talk to and they're going a little stir crazy. In my travels, I've run into culture clash more than once. The first time in the South, when somebody called me honey, I bristled because up in the Pacific Northwest, honey is sarcastic. The next time was in Atlanta, and I had just ordered grits, and the waitress took the order and seemed a little snippy, and I asked a southern friend about it, and she says, well, she thinks that you're faking your accent, you're covering up your raisins, you're pretending to be a northerner when you're actually a southerner, and I says, I'm not a southerner, why would she think I was? And she says, well, you just ordered grits. Another time, having just missed the ferry from Bainbridge Island to Seattle, I was helping a woman in a wheelchair get back down the long passageway to be warm again until the next ferry. It's quite a long causeway, and it's cold. And at one point, I'm talking to her, there's a gentleman behind me, and he hears me say to her, Oh, honey, bless your heart. And he asked, What did she do? And I said, What do you mean? And he told me what bless your heart means in the South. Well, in the Pacific Northwest, if you say bless your heart, you mean it. You, you're feeling sorry for somebody. You feel like they've had a bad thing happen and you want to sympathize with them. And he says, no, that just means you think they're stupid. And I said, that's weird because honey in the South, which you call everybody honey, right? He says, yeah. I says, well, up here it's sarcasm. Don't ever call anybody honey. So we had a strange reversal there of the term or the terms and phraseology. We've got Southerners up here 
uh, I was raised up north of Everett where we have South Carolina imports from a long time ago. And somehow these meanings have gotten reversed. Another extended moment of culture clash came in Angoulême, France, at the big comic book festival. They had unisex bathrooms, and people would line up to use the stalls. And I came into a stall, and there were two gentlemen in front of me who I assumed were French, so I just said bonjour, they said bonjour back, and we stood quietly waiting. And in behind me comes a tall black woman in the most beautiful emerald green punk outfit. It was a dress with amazing shoes. And she said to me in what I had now learned was a kind of an odd accent, um, she asked me something about the toilets. And I assumed she was Moroccan because she was so exotic. And you can see the white people privilege there, assuming that oh, must be must be an exotic person. And so I said in my very bad French, which I can no longer do, uh, I am a stupid American man. I don't know what you said. And she put her hand over her face and in the thickest London Cockney accent said, I'm English. And the two guys in front of me whipped around and said, we're English. And that's when I said, oh my God, you realize what's going on here? We've got four people, three of them English, two of them women, two of them men, uh, one American, three white people, and a black person, and we're all afraid to speak French in front of the French. I should say that the French were not as horrifying about their language as you think they are. They're very polite. They're very helpful. And I would go to the same sandwich shop every day just to pick up a quick snack. And in the course of doing so, I would get further along in my order in French until one day, the final day, I could get the whole order out and I could do change and have them cut the sandwich and wrap it up and then said goodbye. And at that point, because they had all been watching me over the course of the week gradually improve my French, they all burst into applause. So the French will help you. And if you are ever in France and you want to learn better French, let yourself get cornered by a bunch of those little Madeleine schoolgirls because they will school you as long as you'll put up with it in proper Parisian French. And you have to know one word in French. It will help you with everything. I was on the Paris Metro and wondering how I could get through the crowd and get to the door without pushing people because I didn't know how to say I need to get off here. So as we pulled into the station and the speakers turned on and the sounds and the bells turned on and the brakes were hissing, I didn't even think about it. I said, voila, which means there it is, or look at that, I guess. And when I said voila, Everybody in front of me just moved out of my way. And this is the word you can use to respond and agree 
or have people let you off the train. So voila, it's the magic French word. It's like being at a comic con and you need help. And there's all those cos cosplayers. All you have to do is yell Avengers Assemble and you'll get all the people in the world to come help you. Would you like to be part of this podcast? You can go to anchor.fm slash Donna-Bar and you can leave me a voice message with your story that can become part of this podcast. If you would rather have me read it, send a PDF or PDFA, double-spaced, larger type to DonnaBar01 at gmail.com. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash Donna Bar. And finally, if you would like to know anything about what I've done in my life that has to do with my work, conventions, etc., go to DonnaBar.com. Hope to see you there. I will also put all this information in the program notes. A spooky...